0: I'd invite you to pray in your heart as I pray aloud. It's two things. We always say the same thing every single week here. Pray that God will give you eyes to see, ears to hear his truth. And secondly, pray that he'll give you a humble heart to receive his word and change where you need to. I'll pray those things over you. I'd invite you to pray them yourselves as well. God, as we come to your word humbly and expectantly, We ask, I ask for myself that you would give me and and everyone here eyes to see the truth of your word. Give us ears to hear it clearly and give us humility in our hearts to receive your word. Give us humility and grace to repent and change and turn back to you as you, by your spirit, through your word, show us your truth. Help me to speak clearly and boldly and that uh, through the proclamation of your word, we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about nine years ago, I was sitting in my bedroom on a Friday night at about one o'clock in the morning. Emily and I were watching a show, and unexpectedly, as we were watching, we heard one of the loudest bangs that we had ever heard in our life. It scared the snot out of us. It sounded like a gun had been shot about 15 feet from us. One o'clock in the morning, scary reality, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. My sister was living with us at the time. It woke her up. So we went and grabbed all the kids and brought everybody back all, I don't know, there were probably, I guess it was just Tessa at that point. So the, the four of us are gathered back in our bedroom. We're on the phone with the police. They come out. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They, they can't find any evidence of any, you know, craziness going on in the neighborhood or around our house. And so it was this great mystery of what in the world happened and what caused that incredibly loud bang that startled us and scared the snot out of us. We looked and looked. We couldn't find anything. Of course, they, you know, they thought we were crazy, like all these people calling them in the middle of the night, and there's not really a problem. What we, what we found out Later, after investigating, is we'd had a contractor at our house that day to work on something. And the back patio, which was just right next door or right behind our bedroom, had a metal screen door on it. And it was a really windy night. And so what likely happened is as these 30-mile-an-hour winds are gusting, it swung it open and then slammed it shut. And it was this startling, shocking Bang, that was terrifying to us in the moment, trying to figure out what in the world is going on, right? Why do I tell you that semi random story from nine years ago? Why do I lead with that? Here's why. Because when we read the truths of Genesis 2 and what it has to say, Some of you will be here and you'll hear the things said in Genesis 2 and it will feel just as startling to hear how God has designed the universe, it'll feel just as startling to you as it did to me when we were woken up and startled by that door slamming. And I would just say to you, if you're here and these truths feel startling and unsettling, come, let's get together this week, let's reason together, let's think about these things and let's seek truth together. But I know there's others of you here as well that have heard Genesis 2 for years, perhaps for decades, and these things are not startling to you. You're very familiar with them. But you, like me, can oftentimes make sure the front door of your life is locked and fail to check the back door on the patio and make sure it's latched. And just as in my life, when I didn't check on that back door to make sure it was latched after the contractor left and it was really startling and put us into an emergency mode, If we fail to check our lives and line them up with the truths of Genesis 2, we fail to see the back door of our life per se, it can lead us to a terrifying, startling emergency state where we say, What in the world is going on? I thought I was affirming these truths at the front door of my life, and maybe I wasn't fully evaluating my life. So I'd encourage you to look at Genesis 2 in that light and say, Justin, these are things I've known to be true for quite some time. But is your life actually flowing out of and aligned with the truths that God gives us here in Genesis 2? Today's sermon is called Tracing Origins, because that's exactly what Genesis 2 does. It traces our origins, or you might say it this way, the author writes the story. So know the author to know the story and arrange your life in view of the true author and the true story. I want to make just one simple observation before we get to our outline. Look back at Genesis 2 with me in verse 4. I want to reread this because it's important to understand how Genesis 2 relates to Genesis 1. Right? Let's read Genesis 2-4 together here. It reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What's important for us to see is that there's continuity between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. These are not two rival accounts. No, in fact, many commentators think that the the language there, the first time Genesis 2-4 says heavens and earth, and then the second time it says earth and heavens, so those are flipped, heavens, earth, and then earth, heavens, is meant to give us an indicator, hey, we're zooming in here. Now, before there were tablets, you would say you double-click on that, but... We don't really do that anymore. It's kind of like Genesis 1 says, hey, there was a parade. And in Genesis 2, you get a zoomed-in picture and see the order of the floats that came along in the parade. The same account, just more zoomed in and more detail. The outline this morning, it said we're tracing origins. We're going to see the origin of humanity, the origin of humanity's purpose, and then the origin of a human institution. Those are the origins we'll track. Humanity, humanity's purpose, a human institution. So origin of humans, humanity, verses 4 through 9. I'll simply read verse 7 from that. Look back at your copy of the scriptures. Here's what we read. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We said the The theme of Genesis is creation and blessing. God creates and he blesses. He creates, creates man and blesses him with a garden paradise. What's interesting here to see is that the love of God first manifests itself in delight and fellowship to be with mankind. See, it's easy for us to think about the love of God merely forgiving sin, his grace, his mercy, and it certainly does that But it's much more than that, right? If you only see the love of God as forgiveness from sin, then you're just reading the love of God through the lens of Genesis 3, where sin enters the world. So go back and see that God's love flows out of a delight to dwell with you, to have fellowship with you, and see a more robust picture of the love of God. This shows us here that what we saw last week, mankind is the crown of creation, and yet Genesis 2-7, he's also dust. You are the special creation of God, but you are not God. You have to hold both of those together. This means that we are not the masters of our fate. We are not the commanders of our soul. It means we don't get to define our reality. We don't get to define our existence. It means the world doesn't exist so that all our desires can be fulfilled, I was out at, uh, what store was I out at this week? Marshall's, I think, with Emily. And I saw this this sign up on, oh, is there the, do we have the other one there? No, okay. It it said something like, um, you don't, or how did it say that? You don't discover yourself, you create yourself. Like, no. No, you don't create yourself. You don't get to do that. That, that's That's the whole point. There you go. Yeah, life isn't about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. Like, no, that's, that's not how this works. You don't, that, that sign doesn't flow out of knowing the author who wrote the story of your life. All right? uh, I, I was listening to the radio, and I heard a, a similar thing this week. Jake Owen, in his famous uh, country song, he says, like a ship without a sea or like a song without a melody, I don't know where I'd be or what I'd do because I was made for you. And he applies that to a romantic partner. I say, Jake, no, you weren't made for that person. St. Augustine had it right 17, 1800 years ago. He said, our, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Right? Knowing the author means knowing the story and it changes how you live. There's a clear emphasis here on the handiwork of God throughout the origin of humanity. Right? There's the 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 special creation, the intricate creation of God. Verse 4, He made. Verse 5, He caused not to rain. Verse 7, He formed. Verse 7, He breathed. Verse 8, He planted. Verse 9, He caused to sprout. Like the handiwork of God all throughout. He's intimately involved. Look back at verse 7 with me. It says, Then the Lord God, that would be a great little phrase for you to underline, circle, highlight if, if you do that in your Bible. Here's why. Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Two words for God. The one that we introduced in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's Elohim. I told you that meant the strong God, the powerful God that created it all. That's Elohim. Yahweh is the name for the covenant-making God. Some might call it a relational God, and that's true, but relational is, is too small of a word. God makes covenants and he never breaks them. And once he enters into them, he will be faithful to the covenant. And so what what we're seeing here in this picture of Yahweh Elohim is Elohim, super strong, super powerful, mighty to create it all. And Yahweh, the covenant-making God, who cares about the details of your life. You put those two together and that's powerful. Some want to say he's only strong and mighty and distant. Others want to deny his power but say he really loves me and cares about me. And in Genesis 2 and 3, that phrase, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, shows up 23 times. Whoa, clearly Moses wants to see something here, right? That there's the God who made the universe and everything in it. And we've talked about that the last few weeks, and yet he's not just Elohim, he's Yahweh Elohim. He's personal, not just powerful. He's not distant. God forms us out of the dust of the ground and then breathes into our nostrils the breath of life, and we became a living creature. It's intensely personal language here, isn't it? You get the idea of a a tender care of a gardener with the gentle touch of a nurturing parent. Friends, don't lose sight of this here in this first point, that God is immensely powerful and personal at the exact same time. And I wonder if in your life you have begun to lose sight of one of those realities. That he is powerful to deliver you from sin. Perhaps a pattern of sin that you've become discouraged over and you think there's no hope, this is just who I am. Elohim is powerful to deliver you from that sin. Maybe it's Losing sight of his power to save a sibling or a wayward child. Maybe you've come to question Elohim's power to satisfy you in himself. Right, we pray that our circumstances would change frequently. That's not bad to pray for that. Not telling you not to do that, but sometimes our circumstances don't change so that we can then discover that God is powerful enough to satisfy us in himself. And I wonder if you've lost sight of Elohim being powerful enough to satisfy you in himself, even if the circumstances don't get better. But it's not just Elohim we lose sight of. We lose sight of him being Yahweh, the covenant-making God, who's intimately involved in our lives. I personally think of it this way. I like things that rhyme and it helps me think of it. He's not lost sight of me in in my pain, in the mundane, or the profane. In the pain, he's not lost sight of me. He knows where I'm at, he sees me, he cares, and he's with me. In the mundane, seems boring, monotonous. God, have you lost sight? Are you actually with me here? And in the profane, where I think that I can get away with something in the dark corner of my life that nobody else knows about, he's not lost sight there either. He's Yahweh Elohim, immensely powerful and completely personal. He cares about you and he sees you. And don't lose sight of either of those. But I wonder too, you might be here, and you might hear that, and you think, man, the difficulty for me, Justin, is not per se in taking this Yahweh Elohim idea, I just think this account is incorrect. I'm not ready to take God at his word. Didn't Darwin disprove all of this stuff about mankind being the special creation of God? Hasn't modern science and evolutionary theory disproved this? Maybe you've heard Somebody say something like, well, humans and chimpanzees have a 98, 99% genetic similarity. We're very closely related in a genetic sense there, and, and that's, that's good scientific evidence that this account is not correct. If you've heard that, I would just point out as a kind of a, a reminder that sometimes you hear data out of context and it doesn't actually prove the point. Because if you want to go down those lines, you as a human being share an 80% genetic similarity to a field mouse. And you share a 35% genetic similarity to a daffodil. So you can kind of pull data out of context and make it say whatever you want it to, but see the whole picture that the way you see things in the mainstream is not necessarily as simple as what the narrative is supposed to look like. It was Sir Fred Hoyle, the famous astronomer and mathematician from Cambridge, not a believer, who looked at the evidence for life and the design of the universe and said the following. Take a look at the screen here. He said, "...a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature." The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. This guy's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in a creator God, but he knows that blind forces don't create intricately designed life. You don't have a tornado go through a town and get order. You have a tornado go through and get chaos, but our God is the God who brings order out of the chaos, speaks from nothing, and everything is created. And as the author of life, he then has the authority to define the purpose of your life. And that brings us to the second point the origin of human purpose. We see this in verse, chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. As we begin to unpack this, it's important to see some key imagery here in Genesis 2 where the garden is seen as a forerunner to the temple. The Garden of Eden, or more appropriately, the Garden in Eden, is seen as a forerunner to the temple where the presence of God and fellowship with God are realized. The temple must be kept pure as Eden must be kept pure. If you think of some concentric circles, you've got the tree of life at the center, a bit like the Holy of Holies. And then you have Eden, uh, the garden, being out from that. The garden is a bit like the temple. And then Eden, the, the land around, is like the rest of the land. And the picture we get here at the outset is those rivers, right, they're gloriously beautiful. Two of the rivers the original audience would have known about, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the ones they didn't know about and they were not certain which rivers they are or even where they are exactly. what's noted about them is that there's gold around them. There's fine jewels. It's a picture of immense beauty that we're supposed to see here, resembling the gold and the jewels and the beauty of the temple to come. So the picture we start to get is that humanity starts in a wondrous temple where we worship known as Eden, the garden there. And we go from there to a beautiful temporary temple, the tabernacle. And eventually, we'll be going to an eternally glorious cosmic temple that will be this remade earth as it was intended to be. Tell me, that's not a beautiful sight to just start to picture out how it develops. Revelation 21, we read a picture of that future cosmic temple where the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord through these worshipers. Revelation 21, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. If I were to read from other portions of Revelation, I'd see that this city coming down is a perfect cube. Do you know what else was a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple. See, there's this this imagery throughout Scripture. And understanding that the garden is a forerunner to the temple where there's the presence of God and fellowship with God, and it must be kept pure, is critical to reading Genesis 2 here. And I'll show you this from the passage, right? Don't, don't just take my word from it. Let's look back, Genesis two fifteen. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. Critical phrase. Another one you're gonna wanna underline, highlight, circle, whatever you do there. That phrase in the book of numbers is translated to serve and guard serve and guard and it's applied to the levites who work in the temple they're to serve and guard the temple to keep it pure and of course adam doesn't work and keep the garden as he's supposed to he gets kicked out and in genesis 324 we see that same word keep it show up for the cherubim that is placed to guard the garden of eden Because Adam, you didn't guard the garden. You didn't keep it like you were supposed to. God will then guard it himself with his cherubim to keep it pure. So the the picture of humanity's purpose that we're seeing here is that we are to find enjoyment in protecting the land from anything that violates the holiness of God. To work it and to keep it. Last week we looked at the physical nature of work and how it's God's good design for us. And this week you start to see a little bit more of a spiritual picture of that. You see, this refers to man's work in the garden, but it's also more. It's God's story, but also our story, where God invites us into the grand work that he's doing. So Christian, I would just remind you, 1 Corinthians 6, your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when you work and keep your garden, per se, you serve and protect it from anything that violates God's holiness. That's fulfilling in a spiritual sense what God has called all humanity to do. We read that of Adam in Genesis 2.15. And when you do that, you'll be satisfied. You'll find joy in striving after holiness. Look, obviously, this isn't easy, right? But it's tried to actually fight against it. Like, Justin, it doesn't feel like joy in the moment. It's difficult, but it's worth it. It's rewarding. So work, work to protect the garden of your life and your temple for the holiness that God has called you to. We keep going in Genesis 2. Look back at verse 16. We read, And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Right off the bat, we see the blessing of God's commands. And don't we often chafe at commands? It's like a little kid sees cookies coming out of the oven and they want to reach in, grab the the pan, pull it out, grab it, like, no, don't do that. And in the moment, it feels like, parent, why would you keep this good thing from me? There are a few things on earth more glorious than a hot chocolate chip cookie. Appreciate that. But there's the blessing of the command. Say, if you try and do this your way on your terms, it's not going to work out. We don't see commands as a blessing Generally. But in God's world, the commands of God are always right, and they always are a blessing. The the literal translation that we could get from this passage is, eating, you may eat, and dying, you will die. In other words, there's two paths being put forward. You can see the command as blessing, follow it, and be on the path of life and to life, Or you can try and do it your way and pretend like you're the author of your own story. And as you do that, dying, you will die. You will die in the moment and be on the path towards death and destruction. The reality of all of us, and sometimes we're more aware of it than others, is that we think we know what's best for ourselves. We think we do. And generally speaking, as we follow the path that we think is best for ourselves, it leads to destruction. Try and do things my way, not God's way. It's not going to turn out well. Commentator John Salehammer said it this way. He said, God alone knows what is good for human beings, and God alone knows what is not good for them. To enjoy the good, we must trust God and obey him. If we disobey, we will have to decide for ourselves what is good and what is not good. And while to modern men and women such a prospect may seem desirable, to the author of Genesis, it is the worst fate that could have befallen humanity. I, I wonder if you would say in your, in your heart, yeah, I know I shouldn't try and do things my way, but would you use such strong language as he does that to try and define the good for myself is the worst possible fate that I could fall into? Take seriously the words of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. So in a very real sense, this human purpose we're seeing here is that everybody works and keeps the garden of their life in one way or another. Everybody's trying to cultivate it. It's just that some work to keep it according to God's commands, and others do it based on what looks good to them. Everybody's doing this. And I'll just remind you, as I say that, if somebody else comes into your mind that is working and keeping their garden against God's commands, stop. Stop thinking about them. Think about yourself, <laughs> right? It's so easy. Like, man, I know, I know absolutely the person that needs to hear that message. Yeah, I need to hear this message, and so do you. And so I invite you to look inward. Where in your life, go back to my opening analogy, where do you have the front door locked? You affirm biblical truth. You say, I know we're supposed to do things God's way, but the back door's unlatched. Where is it that everything looks good on Sunday morning? But you know deep down you're striving and working for a vision of your life that's different than what God lays out. Where is that? Friend, does the stock market bring you more joy than fellowship with God? Or more despair of late? than losing the ability to fellowship with God? Are you more satisfied in obedient kids than you are in fellowship with God? Maybe ask it this way. What is it that squeezes out your time to commune with God and with God's people? Is it your job that squeezes those things out? Is it your kids' activities? Is it your own social calendar? Friends, there's a path to life And there's a path to death. Choose wisely. You are made to work and keep the garden. To keep out anything that would violate the holiness of God. That would keep you from joyfully delighting in his fellowship and living in his presence. This is clearly what we see in Genesis 2. It's not complicated. It's just difficult to do. This brings us then to a third and final point. The origin of a human institution origin of a human institution. Obviously, this institution is marriage, but it's important to see that there are other institutions to follow, but this one precedes sin, is not a result of sin, not a response to sin. No, God creates and he blesses. He creates mankind and blesses them with the gift of marriage. Look back at Genesis 2, We'll read verses 18 through 20 together. We read, Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, powerful and personal, said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Just pause there. Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to be like, all right, come along, little kitty, we'll call you Tiger. (laughs) I I read that. I mean, I wish I could have been there and seen what that looks like just to see what mankind will call them. Bit of an aside. We'll keep going. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. You see, what, what the Bible presents is that men and women... Are complementary to each other. They're the same, and yet they're different. Right? How are they the same? They're the special creation of God. They are the crown of creation. They bear the image of God made in the imago day that we talked about last week. They bear inestimable dignity and value and worth. They're the same, and yet they're different. How are they different? They're given different names, a different calling. There's different clear biological markers, right? Adam, his name means earth, to work the earth. Eve, we're we're told in Genesis 3, I think verse 24, her name means mother of all the living. There's a name that impacts the calling on both of their lives. Adam is called to servant leadership of his wife. Eve is called to submissive following. And the reality is that both of these callings have been twisted and abused throughout history. But remind yourselves that the abuse of God's good design is grievous and it must not be tolerated. Let me say that again. The abuse of God's good design in gender and sexuality is grievous and must not be tolerated. You might think of grotesque examples of sexual abuse being tolerated and covered up. But there's also a trickle-down effect in other ways that are not as obvious and disgusting. This shows up on one hand of devaluing the role of women in the church, where it says simply, hey, ladies, go serve in kids' ministry and you can't be anywhere else. But it shows up On the other side, of devaluing male headship in the home and in the church. Right? You could fall off the horse on either side there. And we see that happening all over us. So whatever shape the abuse and the twisting of God's good design takes, it doesn't mean the design itself is bad. It just means you shouldn't abuse the good design. Reminder. Genesis 1 and 2, God's good design is not part of the sinful world, it's not a result of the sinful world, no, it's God's good design. Just leave it at that. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, maybe it's another way of saying that. Maybe you hear that and you think, Justin, this is the, one of the oldest books in the whole Bible, maybe the oldest, isn't this an outdated idea? that men and women are supposed to function in complementary ways and not just function in complementary ways, but actually have been designed in complementary ways. No, in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul both affirm the Genesis account as authoritative and normative for life in an ongoing way. Maybe others of you hear that and you think, man, the woman is supposed to be the helper to man. Isn't that degrading and diminishing of who women are and are called to be? If you hear that, let me remind you that all throughout the scriptures, God calls himself our helper. You find that Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 33, Psalm 121. In John 14, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper, right? Don't hear the Bible's terms and define them according to our cultural moment. Let the Bible define itself on its own terms and submit ourselves to it. You can even go beyond what, what Scripture says here. There are clear and obvious objective biological markers to show us the complementary nature of men and women. Right? You can look at genetics. You can look at sexual organs. You can look at bone density. You can look at various hormones. Like, th- this is all over the created order. And there is complete agreement from the created order and in God's special revelation in the Bible. Complete agreement. The complementary nature, then, of Male and female is God's good design for sexuality. I know there's a lot of questions coming up about gender and sexuality, their relationship. Can they be separated? Is one a social construct? I'd invite you to come back this Wednesday at 7 p.m. for Christ and Cultural Conversations as we dig in a little bit more to those topics. All right, so I'll just, we'll talk about it there and don't have all the space right here to, to get into that. As God lays out, this good design for men and women, he then introduces the institution of marriage, right? And so Genesis 2 gives us several things that we can take away from the Bible to teach us about marriage. And I think there's at least four, there's probably more, but let's take a look at four quick ones here. What does Genesis 2 teach us about God's design for marriage? Number one, marriage is good. God creates and he blesses. We've said this several times already, but it needs to be repeated, that marriage and complementarity come before sin. Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. It's a good gift to be enjoyed. Notice, though, it is good, it is not God, and it is not required. right? Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 would say that it's better for some to remain single It's not eternal. Jesus in Matthew 22 would say that in eternity, the marital relations will not exist as they presently do. right? So it's a good gift, but it's not God. It's not required. It's not eternal. Note all of those things. Second, marriage is monogamous. Marriage is monogamous. Look back at verse 24 with me. Moses writes, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Not his wives or several men shall leave their father and mother and hold to their one wife. I don't mean to be beating a, a, a horse here, but God creates one spouse, not multiple spouses. like this is plain and obvious and should be pretty easy to read. and you guys see the news you're watching these things there's. Pushes all over the place. I think there's a couple of cities in Massachusetts where there's, there's legislation being passed for legal protection for polyamorous couples. Well, polyamorous relationships, sorry. Clarify that. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to poke fun as a joke. Um, the, you see that happening. It's, it's real. Um, and, and again, just to, to say what we said before, is this an outdated idea for marriage? Has it been revised by somewhere else in the Bible? And the answer is no. Jesus in Matthew 19 speaks back and says, this is the normative pattern for marriage. It's still authoritative. Nothing has changed here. So marriage is good. Marriage is monogamous. Marriage is heterosexual. It's the third thing we see. Verse 24, we just read, so I won't read it again, but becoming one flesh implies different sexes being united. Think of an extension cord. There's a male end and there's a female end. And the unity... The one fleshness requires sameness with difference. You can't get a USB and HDMI, they're not the same, but you can't get a male end and a male end either. You have to have same with difference. And it's obvious, but procreation is only possible in heterosexual union. So marriage is good, it's monogamous, it's heterosexual, fourth and most significantly, Marriage is gospel-shaped. It's gospel-shaped. And I think this is often missed by Christians. See, the gospel itself, don't, don't think marriage yet, just the gospel itself doesn't promise an easy life or all your dreams being fulfilled. It does not promise that. In fact, it promises suffering, difficulty, but to be made holy, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And marriage as a microcosm, a small picture of the gospel, does the same thing. And we often lose sight of that. I was in a church over uh, Christmas break uh, for a gathering, and I saw this picture on a church, and it really made me sad. Uh, Let's see if we can see that. Oh, that's difficult to read. Notice what's absent here in this picture about how to have a happy marriage. Found this in a church, a good church, too, not, not a heretical one. Rules for a happy marriage. Laugh together, say I love you, forgive and forget, never stop dating, communicate, show gratitude, always kiss goodnight, encourage one another, remember why you fell in love. Well, that's all good marriage advice, but what does it miss? Remember the gospel. That's what marriage is meant to point you back to. So yes, the gospel itself does bring immense joy, satisfaction, happiness, but that's not the actual immediate purpose of it. Somebody in our premarital counseling told Emily and I, marriage isn't meant to make you happy, but to make you holy. And I like that, but it's it's a little bit off, because as you become holy through marriage, you will become happy. It's happiness through holiness, not happiness as the ideal in and of itself, You see there's a connection here where the gospel shapes how you see marriage. And as as marriage gets separated from the gospel, you are going to have a wrong picture of both marriage and the gospel. Ephesians 5 is a great passage to go back to here. I'll read to it in a second. But men, let me just tell you what it says. It says you're called to love your wife and lay your life down for her as Christ loved the church and gave up his self for her. Think about that, men. How did Christ lay down his life for the church? That's what you go do. Man, I tell you, if you read your Bible and you think that complementary relationships leads to misogyny, you're not reading Ephesians 5 very well. There's no space for bullying, male domineering, any of that stuff. Lay down your life for your wife. Serve her. Give up yourself for her. And ladies, what does it say to you in Ephesians 5? You're called to follow your husband's leadings as the church follows Christ. There's a beautiful picture of both lovingly relating to one another, sacrificially leaving, leading, submissively following. Both require you to die to yourself and recognize, above all, that marriage isn't about you. It's just not. Your purpose as a human, to bring it full circle, isn't about you. And your very existence here then is to point people to the God of the universe, who alone is worthy of worship. That's what it means to be a human, to be an image bearer, reflecting the true king. You are the crown of creation, pointing to him. And if we pause and just kind of zoom out for a second... On the whole of Genesis 2 of what we've seen here, see the beautiful picture. God creates the universe. It's a cosmic temple where all creation sings his praises and he delights to dwell with man. He commissions man to serve and guard the temple from impurity. He commissions man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with worshipers. And yet mankind fails to do this and the whole earth is corrupted by sin. So what does God do? He takes on the project himself. He begins his own quest to cleanse the temple. He lays out a sacrificial system whereby the temple can be cleansed. But it's not an eternal system. It won't work forever. So he himself sends his son to earth to cleanse the temple, to make purification for sins, to pay the penalty for sin. The true image of God comes down and does what mankind failed to do. He then begins creating a new people, created in his image, his true image, who will one day be fully in his image, and one day they'll live in a garden paradise more glorious than Eden, and they will delight to dwell with God forever. Wow, tell me that's not beautiful. Breathtakingly beautiful to see, yes, God's story, and him wondrously inviting it and allowing us to participate in his story. The beginning starts with the end in view. Maybe we've read Genesis 2 in a small way and we've missed the larger picture, the larger beauty of what's being communicated. So we'll go to communion here in just a minute. But before we do that, let me just just remind you of a couple of things. First off, communion is for Christians who've been baptized, they follow Jesus, that's you, feel free to take communion, partake of it. If not, it's not for you, don't do that. But as you go to communion, we'll give you a few minutes of quiet and then you can take communion yourself. But, but think back on this God, this Creator God, who's both powerful and personal. He's Yahweh Elohim. Have you lost sight of one of those? He's called you to work and keep your garden, the garden of your life, to cleanse it from impurity and to fight and protect it from that? Have you failed to do that? And have other things felt more important and more pressing? And he's called you to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves sinners. You die to self and find life, joy, satisfaction in that way in your marriage. And have you seen the gospel through an American lens of happiness, not a biblical lens of holiness. Take these things to Jesus as we have silence here, as we have quiet, and thank him that he came down and made purification for sin. So whether you've seen a wrong view of him, a wrong view of the world and your calling in, it, or a wrong view of sexuality, there's forgiveness and mercy and grace bought by the precious blood of Jesus and claim his righteousness, not your own. Not that you can get it together, not that you can work harder, but that his righteousness on your account is better than any righteousness you could ever bring to the table that's good news to remember and preach to yourself as we go to communion. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that your blood has washed away our sin, that the Father's wrath is completely satisfied and we were once your enemy and now we are seated at your table. We thank you that you are not only powerful and Elohim but personal as Yahweh as well. You've allowed us to participate in your glorious creation, to be part of pointing people to the true king who alone is worthy of worship. God, I pray you'd give us the grace to see where our lives are not lined up there, where the back door is unlatched and is going to create an emergency soon. Helps repent and turn to you and cling to Jesus. We pray these things in your name, amen.